You're listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Australia, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders. I'm Fraser, and I help connect businesses with tech talent, and today, I'm your host. Welcome to this episode of the Evolution Exchange Podcast. It's the latest in our ongoing series where we talk with leaders like yourself in the Australian tech industry about topics like culture, scalability, and growth. As ever, we have a cohort of industry experts who are excited to share their thoughts and insights with you. So let's get into some introductions. So Kanal, we've got the CTO of Good Human here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, hi, everyone. My name is Kunal Madev. I am the CTO of Good Human. Uh, thank you for having me here today. Um, I've been, uh, I started in the industry about 12 years ago as an individual contributor, software engineer. Um, I thought that I would be that guy at about 60 to 70 years old of age where I would still be a software engineer. Uh, about five years into my career, I got the opportunity to become a people leader and a people manager, uh, and it changed my life uh, and my career from that point for, um, onwards, and I've never looked back. And so throughout my years, I've gone on to various roles of team leaders, engineering manager, head of engineering, and find myself as a CTO of Good Human at the moment. Perfect. Thanks, Kanal. And, and Nadisha, over to you, the, the Director of Engineering at Mr. Yum. Tell us about yourself. Oh, thanks very much. So, my name is Nadisha, as you've just heard, um, Director of Engineering at Mr. Um, um, I've been in the industry for more than a decade. Uh, I never wanted to be a manager. I never wanted to lead people. Uh, but unfortunately, I have taken the step into the dark side lately. So, um, <laughs> over, over the last uh, about 10 or 12 years, I've always been crafting software uh, without a manager or not. Um, I've uh, worked uh, a lot with uh, very small scale startups going from zero to 60 really, um, really quickly. And then um, uh, big companies uh, which have had like thousands and thousands of developers where I was made to feel like a cog in the, cog in the machine. Uh, but lately I've, uh, I've gravitated towards uh, scale ups like Mr. M where I find myself in and currently I lead the engineering teams at Mr. M. Perfect. Thanks, mate. Uh, and Sumesh, the, the Head of Engineering at ESOP, tell us a bit about yourself as well. Hello, everyone. I'm Sumesh Yam. So, um, so currently, I'm the Head of Engineering at ESOP. So I manage uh, developers and QA across the business. If you know about ESOP, ESOP is a, like a skincare brand, which we headquartered at Melbourne, and we are yeah, we spread across 20 to 25 countries, around 200 odd uh, stores. Personally, like I've been um, uh, been in IT for more than like a 15, 16 years and went through a different phase, ICs, manager, tech lead, then again IC and like a different kind of roles. Uh, worked in startups and then moved into scale-ups too. And uh, yes, you could call me as one of the accidental manager or someone who ended up in this role. And then it totally you realize actually how different the role is once you are in the role that oh the challenges are not the same so the way you think is very different so either it's the age or it's the role it made me more wiser or would think that okay i think about things in a different perspective so yeah it's good to have the conversation today and thank you for inviting Chris. no is it all mate and last but definitely not least uh, simon the engineering director at invato tell us a bit about yourself mate uh, yeah, look, before I get to me, I just wanted to respectfully acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people as the traditional owners of the country on which I live mm-hmm. uh, and the value and the significance of those people and their history. Thank you. 
Uh, yeah, I work for Invato, a uh, world-leading online um, community for helping people bring their creative ideas to life. That's the way we describe ourselves. Um, for me, I have, was an apprentice. I've been in the industry for 30 years or so. I started off as an apprentice programmer, as we called ourselves back then, uh, in about 1991. Uh, I think similar to many of you, I was passionate about software development or programming, you know, writing code. Uh, I went from that to product companies, to consulting, um, back to product companies, mostly as an IC, then to being a manager again and getting out of being a manager. Uh, and I started at Invato about uh, six years ago uh, in the people team, as it happens, um, helping us you know, grow and scale up at the time. That was a nice reprieve from the last job where I kind of burnt out a little bit uh, and then went back into management somehow. I keep accidentally ending up here too. Yeah. Perfect. One, one of the things that I seem to notice around all four of you, I think, uh, was that not only have you all been developers in the past or currently, et cetera, but there, there seems to be a common th uh, thread of being an IC at some point. Uh, I, I mean, for someone potentially out there that doesn't know exactly what an IC is, um, Simon, just to jump back onto you, mate, can you explain a little bit around what an IC is and how potentially that led you into being in a, a leadership role? Yeah, look, IC, individual contributor, um, that's the, you know, they're the people that make the stuff that actually, you know, <laughs> happens, yeah. uh, happen. Uh, I think I loved, I, it was a creative endeavour for me. I just loved problem solving. Uh, and the way I learned to do that as a kid was, using a computer, we had a Commodore 64 and then an IBM compatible uh, computer. And then uh, I managed to convince someone to give me a job. And it really was, it was the problem solving aspect that I just loved. And there was freedom in doing that. I could create something. I was not particularly good at drawing or any of that stuff. So it really was creative and problem solving. And then I think, uh, why did I end up in management? I think because the there's a limit to how much you can i felt i could do doing the work and the industry as a whole is changing so fast mm. it was just wasn't i i'd gotten to the end of what i felt was my ability to contribute and there were people who were much better at doing that than i was but the skills that i'd picked up in architecture and design and stakeholder engagement and influence and working through others uh, I was sort of accidentally and intuitively doing that. And I guess I decided I wanted to be better at doing that and leave the programming to the people who seemed to be better at it than I was. Um, <laughs> and so I flipped to, yeah, wanting to bring people together and build dynamic teams of people who could do that stuff, you know, in a, in a way that maybe as an individual they would be doing. Yeah. It sounds like all four, four of you accidentally managed to end up in management and uh, you're, you're dominating that scene in, in an exceptionally exciting way. So it's you know not what I usually expect when I when I talk to people that are in management roles, but I think if you really boil it down with a lot of people in management roles, they'll probably say that it wasn't what they intended to do originally. Uh, but look, through, I, I think one of the things that I find talking to managers a lot is that uh, reaching that point when you realize that you're really good at making things happen, but you're also really good at recognizing that there are people out there that are 
outstanding in our situation developing and being able to point those people in the right direction and, and structuring it in a way that they can make the magic happen where you where you sort of make sure that they're making the magic happen in the right way, which I think is really exciting. But look, all four of you, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, the Evolution Exchange is richer for having uh, you four involved. What are we talking about today? Uh, following on from our latest exchange episodes, which uh, if the four of you haven't listened to yet, I'd highly recommend doing it. And anyone listening out there, if this is your first, what have you been doing? Today, we're looking at <laughs> scaling a development team, uh, the tips, strategies, and tricks to a certain extent used by industry leaders. It's something that, for obvious reasons, I'm very passionate about, and I'm keen to understand what you've learned throughout your careers. And as we continue to emerge from what has been undoubtedly uh, a very crazy few years, I'm sure that the methods that you're using will continue to change and, as I've said before, evolve based on the current financial climate and what part of your business growth cycle you're actually in. So that's what today's about. And adding to that, we'll be drilling deeper into specific subtopics chosen by each of our guests. Something that's been important over the last or over the recent years is culture. And I'm sure that we'd all agree that in the current climate, culture is right up there with innovation and development as one of those requirements for any strong engineering team and by extension, uh, any team uh, across any industry. And I know when I talk with developers and engineers, one of the first questions they ask me is, what is the culture like at that particular company? Even more so, uh, after we've seen redundancies in our industry recently. And this takes me neatly to you, Kana, uh, with the subtopic that you are looking at talking about today. So when, when, you, when I first came to you to talk about this, uh, you, you mentioned that you'd really like to sort of talk about how you maintain or enhance your engineering culture during a period of rapid growth, which definitely we've seen recently at Good Human, which has been super exciting uh, from the outside to watch what you guys have been doing there. But tell me a little bit about what what you've sort of brought to the table and sort of what, what the team through you was doing as well. Yeah, yeah, sure thing. So um, I've had, uh, depending on how you look at the pleasure or the misfortune of going through two rounds of rapid growth at companies. Yeah. Um, and I think when you talk about tips and strategies, it really comes down to lessons learned when you go through these, these journeys and what you would do if you could do the journey again. Um, more closely with a good human, um, I joined the company about 10 months ago uh, as the CTO, and we were a very small engineering team at the time. Um, three in-house full-time engineers, with the rest all offshore. Uh, and our plan at the company where we had about, I think, 18 staff at the time, and we fast forward 12 months, or just under 12 months, sorry, we're sitting at about 60, 65, with most of that being in the engineering team. Um, and in so that journey of that short, that relatively short time, we've gone through and had to scale our engineering team. Um, and the things around that is, it's more than just getting bums on seats, because I think it's very easy to go out there and say, we need 20 engineers, five QAs, infrastructure, and just go get those bums on the seats. Um, I think what's really important to call out is what's the culture you want to end up with and grow and hiring for that culture. And so one of the things I learned from uh, previous rounds of doing this is scaling too quickly, um, where you hire the first three, four X number of um, personnel, and then you've already got the next batch ready to go. Um, and you don't have enough time to get that return on investment from that first batch to see what culture you've landed with and you, what you want to maintain and grow from there. So a good human, we had the pleasure of going through a rapid growth journey, but had a little bit of leeway in between of how we got those mostly engineers and QAs that came on board. Uh, and we, we grew on that face. Um, one thing that we did through our recruitment process was really focus on the personality um, of the candidates 
the what they could bring to the table, what their mindset was, and then if it aligned with the culture that we were building, because we were re- reforming our engineering culture. It was less about can you write JavaScript code and how well do you do it, but more what else do you bring to the table? Because um, I see some head nods in, in the room here. We all agree that everyone can learn tech, but it's quite hard to change personality. Um, it can be done, but not something that we all really want to be doing. Um, but if you've got the right mindset, the right people coming in um, and wanting to solve problems, that is going to foster a, a much better culture. Um, and then you go into from, you build that culture up, you maintain it. And as each new hire comes in, you want to enhance that as you go as well. Perfect. And, and look, as you sort of brought people in, and I, and I know from spending probably a little bit too much time looking at LinkedIn and seeing you guys <laughs> pop up that uh, regularly yeah. there were a number of different hires that were popping up. And uh, one of the things that I know we talked about before jumping in here uh, was the, I guess, the story that that uh, Good Human was looking to tell and, and similar to how evolution works around being storytellers. And I, mm. I, I did notice that you guys had this consistent theme running through uh, all of your sort of major uh, intel of different engineers that there was a story at, at Good Human and that you were bringing people in to be a part of that, not just to be a part of the company. Can, can you tell me a little bit more around sort of how you guys came up with that particular story and how you managed to maintain that through bringing multiple people in? Yeah, I have to give all credit to our wonderful marketing and branding team and our, our talent team for <laughs> really getting that up and running. Um, but we we certainly live and breathe that. Um, we, as I was saying earlier, we bring in people who want to solve the problem and be part of our mission, our story. Uh, we're not, again, looking for the bums on seats because um, that's not what we're looking to do. We're really looking to solve that problem. And so that story arc that we, as you've seen on LinkedIn, on, on the web and where we push it for, that's the story we do drill through our recruitment process, our all of our adverts, or every conversation we have. We're bringing it to the real problems that we're trying to solve as a company and less focus on it's a tech role. And it's the tech we want to focus on. Although it's exciting, there is wonderful tech happening at Good Human. Uh, it's not the primary driver of what we're really brought together for. Perfect. All right. And you put your hand up there, Samish. Did you have a question? Yeah, just for now, like when you, uh, it's funny actually when you scale up, right? So there's always a, a culture which is already inside the team. And as you grow, you need to promote the good culture and then you need to shun the bad culture or you need to, you need to be a bit more intentional about it. Like, what did you do? Like, it's sometimes it feels like a folklore. It's very hard to actually get rid of some of the old habits as we grow. So, yeah, it's good to know. Yeah, great question, mate. Uh, old habits die hard. I can say that for yeah. sure. Um, in a startup, um, you know, you've, you've got the the ways of working, which um, not that's not ones that scale. Um, and so I, I would definitely say looking back, the first two to possibly three months, quite intentional was when I came in around what I would see us be wanting us to do in terms of how we want to operate. Um, and then we started bringing in the like-minded candidates who fostered that and actually nurtured and grew it further than I could actually take it. Um, but certainly in the beginning days, it was it was very intentional. Um, the biggest call I must make, though, that the existing staff we had um, were super on board with the vision as well. So there wasn't much pushback or any pushback, to be honest. Um, they were bought into it. They actually knew that what they were doing wasn't what needed to happen. Um, but what was lacking was a leadership mind and voice to really drive us in that direction and also more bodies to get us there as well. And so it was very intentional. Um, whereas I can say today, the last few rounds of recruitment we've done, it's been more about the story and getting the right people in and less about changing the culture or building it because it is organically growing the way that I would like it to grow as well. Perfect. And Simon? Yeah, I was going to say I love like – I love that it's about the lessons you've learned. Uh, that certainly resonates with me. 
Um, and as a relatively older person, uh, I often worry that I'm a little bit uh, maybe cynical uh, at times. So it's lovely to hear that hear you say uh, it's not all about the tech and the tech is something you can learn. And, and I, I believe that, you know, having gone through it being an IC, I think you can always learn new technology, but the people and the culture and the way you approach things and the mission and the purpose is really important. So I guess it's lovely to hear that that's the approach you took. Uh, you sort of touched on it about the buy-in. I'm curious to understand how you got that buy-in and vision to take that approach, given the prevailing view of the, let's call it the tech industry, is you've got to have people, they've got to be all up in the everything, uh, and that that's the most important thing, where my experience is when we've hired for that, it hasn't worked. Those people tend to be very good at their job in one aspect, but potentially lacking in others. Yeah, great question. Um, in terms of getting the buy-in internally, um, it was a couple of things. One, having been through a journey before and lessons learned and explaining to the, the leaders in the business of those lessons and what I want to do differently and also to the engineers as well that I've been here before. So I think that the experience does add a little volume to what you're saying and what you're proposing to do and to action it through. Um, and to the second part of what you were saying, uh, we, you know, it was, it was great to say yes to candidates we want to hire, but equally powerful to say no to great candidates and great can mean different things to different companies. Um, I could rattle off uh, a list of people from my memory that were, technically brilliant um but not the right fit for the culture that we had at that time and probably not even where we are today but arguably in six to eight months they probably would be the right fit because we're at that size we can support that and so um where the buying got in from the business was yes i said no to a few candidates who on paper were like why didn't we get them but you have to explain the vision and get that buy and show the planning i had around it because mm. end of the end of the day oh sorry cut you off there mate end of the day um, you know, a very small company like Good Human that was growing to where we are, um, I don't want to say one bad hire, but it is quite hard to change your culture when you've got someone who's potentially holding you back or not quite the right fit for where you are. Yeah, no, that makes sense. When you said the plan, I'll extrapolate. Maybe you didn't mean this, but like in your mind, even if it wasn't uh, explicit, you had a strategy that you were executing on to get to the right outcome you wanted, a plan to get you there and yeah. making that explicit helped people buy into what you were doing and why and the choices that you were making. Exactly. And also during the process of interviewing, explaining to candidates what that plan is, where we are today, where we'll be in say two to three months based on how we're growing and then we would be in six to eight months time. Um, and I think, yeah, there's definitely was a plan and explain that out, uh, but it was a lesson learned from a previous round where there was a looser plan um, and uh, the loose plan didn't work out as well. Like yes, we scaled, and we, we grew the company. It was all fantastic. But um, I learned so much from going from that journey where the plan needed to be tighter. And the plan was formulated way before we even went out to uh, recruit for anyone. It was like, I need to make sure that I know what we're trying to get to and be the right captain of that particular journey um, and then follow it through. Perfect. Nice. Yeah. Sebesh? Yep. So um, I believe you've been in this journey for at least more than a year or so. Kunal? Uh, a good mm. human? No, just uh, 10, almost 11 months, okay. so just under a year. Yeah, cool. So as we grow right now, like from 
whatever number was there now to 60, right? I assume you'll be delegating things to a lot more people who would be hiring for you. How do you scale the culture? Because not every place you can be there. Your first hire might be your close one, but then it takes, like, is there any tips or any steps which you took to scale the culture? Yeah. Yeah, no, that, um, we have very recently gone through that. So because we're quite a small company, relatively flat, I was heavily involved in the that, those rounds. Um, but very recently, we have um, onboarded uh, our first engineering manager, who is that next layer. Um, and it took a long time to go through that process to recruit for that person um, because, as exactly as you said, Samesh, uh, we're de- I'm delegating my view, my passion to someone who's going to be running that process and continuing to grow it if not enhance it. Um, so we went through uh, quite an extensive search to find the person to get uh, who we ended up getting, um, who was aligned. I think that was the key element of it. I don't know if it's always a great thing to be aligned with, that, <laughs> with the engineering manager, but it felt very good from this particular area. Uh, we were very aligned on what we I was trying to do at Good Human and where we would go the next journey when they would take over. Because I yeah. have views on where we could go and what we should do and an understanding what, um, and Brenton McClade is his name, um, what he would be doing with his view. Um, but it was very important. That was probably, I would say that's probably the most important hire I would have made in my time at Good Human because it is such a big part of uh, an engineering leader's role that isn't necessarily clearly defined in the industry. Uh, coding and architecture and principal engineer, generally speaking, is pretty well defined. Um, growing recruitment, culture, collaboration, all that soft skill side of it isn't really well defined. And so um, you had to find someone um, that we would work really well together and aligned on. Perfect. Yeah. I think that that leads perfectly into sort of what we're going to be looking at next. But I think what I've taken out of that is that you've had, I guess, two different types of plans. And the second plan, I guess, was a lot more agile to use a term that I see a lot in job descriptions where uh, you were able to pivot and move to sort of make sure that it's still focused in the right direction. Uh, and then moving into the the engineering manager, obviously having those aligned methodologies. And I guess there were a lot of discussions building up to it where you really got to know each other. So you knew that if you were sort of to step away and focus on something else, that the engineering manager w- was an extension of you, but with their own own color and flair to, to come along with it. And I think yeah. that, that sort of lines up perfectly with the, the question that we were going to look at next, which was how do you build shockproof engineering teams at scale? And I think you've actually touched on that with a couple of the points that you made there. And I, I guess a couple of the really helpful questions to lead into that and a really sort of non-jarring segue. But uh, Nadisha, that, that was going to be what you were going to talk about, mate. So, so how what yeah. are your thoughts on building a shockproof uh, engineering team? Well, uh, the good thing about this is that I don't have thoughts, so I was just going to, like, you know, ask you uh, <laughs> right. all to sort of fill in the blanks of all of this because I can nice. take some tips uh, yeah. as well. Uh, but like, maybe, maybe I'll just um, maybe I'll just do a preamble on why I think um, uh, it is kind of valuable to talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. Selfishly, for me, like, so I, I work at Museum. We have any uh, consumer demand driven. And uh, we're very much, uh, we are very much prone to the business uh, climate. We are just after our post series A. We, um, we, we operate in three markets currently, which is Australia, uh, United Kingdom, and uh, United States. Uh, and we work with a lot of cost sensitive customers because we are a cost product. We operate in restaurants for restaurants. 
Uh, so with the prevailing macroeconomic situations and uh, the community pressures, this is very top of mind for us because we tend to have a lot of shocks in our businesses. And I think like all of us tend to have these shocks, whether we are a startup scale up or uh, established enterprise as well. And these shocks, uh, as I said, tend to be like macroeconomic induced and as well as technological as well. Um, also tend to be like whether you have your money in the Silicon Valley Bank that just went out of business um, as well. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of things uh, that kind of induce these shocks. And I think that um, we we are seeing um, a, a rate of change in our industry that we probably haven't seen um, in I'd say the last decade. Um, we've had COVID work from home and then mandatory return to office. And then, you know, the last six months, there was generative AI and then a computer started writing code. And then, um, you know, Meta laid off a bunch of managers and directors and a whole bunch of other companies did saying that, hey, if you don't want to code, you, know, you should probably not be a manager. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, th- this is all to say that I, I am I'm slightly contrarian on this and I'm, and I'm keen to dig into this question. Um, I think that bad engineering teams uh, do not build enough defenses against shocks. And I think good engineering teams tend to absorb shocks. They tend to tolerate them well. But I think like really great engineering teams thrive on shocks. They respond well to volatility and they tend to learn from volatility in order to, you know, operate better as well. Um, As much as we like to think that um, engineering teams are sort of static and um, non-organic. They are they are very much complex adaptive system. Like um, Kunal mentioned about, like culture is one of the biggest part of um, how an engineering team uh, would scale and grow and thrive. Um, and I think that um, this is also like if you take a very specific example, like. Adding 20% capacity to an engineering team does not result in a 20% net output, right? Like, so it's, it's definitely, like we said before, like it's definitely not bumps on seats. Um, and I think that currently in engineering teams, we we tend to do this a lot. Uh, we, we tend to do this um, shock resistant, we tend to have these shock resistant mechanisms, like we tend to have instant management um, which tends to look at what went wrong. And it's uh, we tend to run uh, blameless incident programs here uh, at Mr. Yam and I think in, in most of our companies, uh, we, we do as well. Uh, we do mobbing and rapid iteration. We tend to learn fast and we do retros at the end of sprints and we tend to, um, as a group, come together and uh, look at what went wrong and how we can do better. Um, but all to say that uh, there's, there's a lot there's a lot of ways that this conversation could go. Um, and I, I, I think that there are technical, um, there are technical um, sort of methodologies that we can explore in order to have like um, shock resistant injury teams as well. But one thing that I'm really, really uh, bullish uh, on is building injuring teams with general enough specialists so um, one of, um, I'm, I'm not sure who said this, I think um, it was from a book um, where, but it struck me um, and the quote was that specialization is for insects. Um, and I think, <laughs> I think, 
I think, um, yeah, it, it's good to hear the laughs. And, and I think that most of you would agree as well. Like, you know, I, I, I don't think that um, most of you having, most of us having come from like an IC background into a manager role and now, uh, you know, exercising different different skills would disagree wholly with that um, as well. Um, and also like you can see the parallels between like societies, as societies tend to grow, they tend to, they tend to favor um, uh, specialists. But then again, what I kind of see is that when engineering teams are sort of um, housed or staffed with uh, specialists who tend to specialize really well, but who are not very good generalists, they tend to not be that much resistant against the shocks as well. Um, and I think culture is a really big part that drives it. It all depends on what kind of a culture or what you like, what you want people to do, whether you want them to be siloed, whether you want them to like go into a care design system, come back, implement it, don't talk to anyone. You just don't want people like that because, you know, no one can ever take a leave and the bus factory is essentially one. Um, mm. But yeah, keen to, keen to explore this question with all of you as well. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, I'll throw it over to you first, Kanal, and get, get your sort of thoughts on, I guess, you've, to a certain extent, done exactly what we're talking about over the last uh, 10 months or so at, at Good Human. So, uh, I guess, you're of anyone that we could be talking to in the wider community at the moment, you're, you're probably the person with some of the most hands-on, uh, most up-to-date ideas on uh, building a shock-proof engineering team. So, yeah, take it away. Yeah, look, I think um, I wholeheartedly agree with everything that Nadish is saying. Um, I was your comment around the specialists and generalists—it's so accurate because um, I think if you're doing nothing but specialists, it actually breeds the culture you don't really want, which is silos. Um, as Nadisha said, resistance to or volatility, like they can't handle that kind of thing. It doesn't quite make sense. Um, and you lose the collaboration piece, which is a big part of being a part of a wonderful engineering culture. Um, you know, there is a time and place where specialists make sense, though. I'm not saying that we should completely disregard them, but it depends on what you're trying to build as well. Um, and if you're looking for a shock-proof thing, you want teams to be resilient. Um, chuck any problem at them, and ideally, they should be able to handle it. And then um, you, you talked about an interesting point about post postmortems or incident responses and learnings and, and like all those wonderful things that breeds a great culture because. Um, as I said earlier, my point where I learned how to scale from a previous attempt to where I did now, it's the same mindset. You're always in this growth mindset around what can we do better next time if something goes wrong or something like this happens again. Perfect. I, and, uh, oh, I think Sumesh was first. Jump in, mate. Yeah, so uh, just to add to both of you, Dish and uh, Kunal, uh, in my view, there's nothing called like a shock proof. You can, like my dad was in army and uh, he used to think, say, we can prepare as much as you want, but the only thing is you can do is how do you react when things changes? Um, and in my belief, like a, what I believe is this engineering function, that right? you can, you should be able to pivot quickly, especially during the the pandemic, right? The industry where I work with, like a lot of the stores will go, it was shut down and others, right? You suddenly, the traffic and behaviors, customer behavior changes and it moves to online, right? You have to prepare for that, like how quickly and how brutal you are with your prioritization that how many times you say no, that, okay, you can do the right thing, which is most valuable, right? And I slightly differ, I might be the wrong one here, I slightly differ with the generalist and specialist thing. Yes, I do agree, like a generalist gives us a lot of capability. Uh, but at some point when you scale, I feel uh, there are certain areas where a single person cannot 
own a lot of things and you might need to be very strategic with that and tactically put place, put people in place who are specialists in that space and maybe learn from that people so that there are uh, there are more developers who are aware of uh, what I call is more like a self-aware, self-awareness and understand the organization, how it works, what's more important for the business. And when we have better understanding about the business and where business makes money and where uh, we provide value to the customer, then we are in a better state to respond to situation which happens externally. Cool. Simon? Uh, yeah, look, I could... This is an area that I am extremely passionate about. <laughs> As it happens, um, psych safety and you know responding to change and anti fragility and all that sort of stuff uh, is a passion. But I'll be at risk of monologuing. And if anyone's watched The Incredibles, you know that that's when <laughs> superheroes get done in. Um, so I'd, I'd much rather ask a question, which is that: um, How are you observing uh, this? you know, within your engineers, how are you observing either positively or otherwise the, the their ability to adapt to change? And, um, you know, I don't know, when you observe individuals, do you notice characteristics of those who are better at it than others or teams that are better at it than others? And how do you go about using that, I guess? Good question. Um, I can I can take that on first um, if Kunal or um, Sumesh want to jump in as well. Um, I I broadly uh, just before answering that question and, and this will lead to uh, your question, um, Simon as well. Um, I I don't think that. So I agree with Sumesh. Uh, and everyone can't be a journalist about everything. So you can't be like fluent in front end and do back end and be good in distributed systems, know about security, and then, you know, do DevOps stuff as well. And it is, it is like uh, the, the breadth of the, the skills that our industry actually expects is, uh, it, it does not need to fit into one person's head. So we tend to, we, we need to have, we, we need to have specialists in our organizations. But I tend to approach being a journalist uh, more as a frame of mind than, um, sort of like a separate skill set. And this is how I would kind of bridge that with um, the question that Simon asked as well. So it's, it is indeed the characteristics that you tend to expect, you, you want to expect from that particular individual that actually matters as much as being a generalist. Um, if you tend to look at a problem and then to go like, this is not my problem, this is not my area, uh, that is absolutely the wrong attitude that I would expect from an engineer. Um, even if you don't know something, you would not. You would need to know like whom to go and ask to, and uh, which which technology to explore. Um, and I think that uh, people who have sort of the generalist mindset that yeah, I don't know this, but you know we can figure it out, or we can you know form a team to figure it out, and we don't have this competency in our company. Um, how do we how, how do we make sure that we drive towards the business outcome rather than drive towards the technical outcome? Um, how do we solve the problem rather than build the solution? Um, that is that is how I would um, that is sort of like the one characteristic that comes out to me mm. um, when I look at someone who tend to um, operate that way. Perfect. Uh, yeah, that's uh, yeah. Oh, okay. I was just going to say, which one of the two of you wanted to jump in next? 
I was just going to say, I think um, I'll just tack on a little bit to what Natisha is saying. Like, I think there's a big ownership piece that comes out of it where a problem mm-hmm. comes up and it's like, yep, um, that's a problem that maybe I can't solve or my team can't solve, but we're going to take on it and get it done. And we'll go reach out to who people, whoever we need to, to ensure that it does get done. Um, instead of um, what I have seen, not a good human, but at previous worlds where it's kind of handed over the fence. Like, God, oh, it's your problem now. I've done what I can. Now it's your problem. Yeah, so I was going to say that. Oh, continue, Simon. Continue, Simon. I was, I was going to say. I mean, it's those behaviours are fascinating. Um, the, you know, there's a trap that people can fall into. In my experience, where you know, when things get hard, people's first instinct is to grab for a roles and responsibilities and a racy matrix, and you know, who's going to be doing what. And I don't know what yours is like, but in my experience, I this isn't really a tip, it's more of a like a warning sign is that oh, I've never seen that high-performing teams want those things. They don't need them because they typically, to, to your point, uh, Nadisha, but no, it, within the bounds of their expertise, there's a lot of overlap and they don't see it as being roles and responsibilities. It's how can we get together and collaborate and uh, solve the problem at hand in the most effective way Um and I guess you know, I said before, it's a passion of mine. Uh, it's uh, how to get there is the interesting thing, and that to me is a lot about how you develop psychological safety within a team, the ability to fail, the ability to come together and team and um, trust one another and your skills and um, feeling included and learning from mistakes and contributing to the solving of the problems and being able to challenge one another fostering those things is a big part of it from my experience um but certainly pretty obvious when it's not happening i think yeah, absolutely i i tend to um sorry you go I, I was just going to say, I, I think that sort of comes back a lot to what we were talking about before around sort of innovation and, and the, the culture that people in your position sort of sort of create, which sort of then trickles down around the team. And uh, so if you are going to fit into that sort of, I guess, matrix of how things are meant to move forward and everything that all of you have listed there is, uh, I mean, amazing stuff, but I think it carries through the culture that your companies are trying to create. And then from that sort of grassroots level of culture is where you sort of get into being able to understand whether or not your team is shockproof and resilient and everything because you've got that, I guess, that, that foundation underneath everyone when they come in, like the story that you're creating at Good Human, just to sort of bounce back because it's something I know more about than other things, I guess. Uh, but then going into sort of Mr. Yum and how you are sort of looking at sort of creating that team there and that sort of dynamic team that can handle all the challenges that I guess have been more readily apparent recently, uh, that creating that that foundation and that culture of sustainability, culture, sorry, sustainability, innovation, and I guess change and, and uh, being able to pivot around those changes puts you in the position to have quite a shockproof team because I guess you're bringing in the right people that already are answering those questions when they come in the door, I, I guess would be my sort of two cents from the outside. Uh, Nadisha, did you have anything else that you wanted to add or, or Samesh around sort of the, the question that was posed there? No, see, uh, like I was just uh, responding to Simon, like these attributes that you mentioned, right? like it let the team fail, like it 
blameless culture these things are very important culture plays an important part in it but i remember like a, one of my like a, uh, there was a junior engineer who trained into this uh, there was an incident where that engineer cannot solve an incident by himself right there's a good thing that he stayed around with the team so it was one or two member but it was so amazing for the team member in terms of morale even though it's not part of the jd so first thing is jd cannot be defined with everything in it but then it was not part of the jd but that person has that attitude to come and sit beside you to reflect on ideas and maybe odd job of communicating it right and that single person that person has learned so much through that experience that when the next time something like this happens a person can respond to that event better and and that tells a lot about that dynamics exactly about the high performing team you learn from each other and be there for others and that's an amazing quality sometimes it's not about the skill set itself sometimes being there to even support some odd task and that will help you in future in some way or form that's amazing hmm. so yeah i mean again bringing it back to the thing about um the shockproof stuff um one of the things that i think i take for granted uh, you know we've talked a lot about our experiences are shaping the way we handle these situations and the roles we're in and i think that's something i often take for granted i've internalized a lot of things um and one of the things i've noticed recently is that there's a lot of change happening it's been mentioned a lot of change in the industry um not just technology but uh, you know internal change in teams and for whatever reason i've gotten better with change over the years i've noticed that i've grown from it. it i literally look back and go i learned from this thing that i didn't do well or that didn't go well or whatever and those are the things that have shaped me and i think um i've had to get much better at um engaging with more junior uh engineers for example not to explain it so much i mean it's possibly how i come across sometimes but at least to help understand that this is how we're going to learn to be better these changes and these failures that we're experiencing and a team falling apart quote unquote or you know the project not in not starting well or the hiccups along the way these are literally the things that will shape us doing it better and i embrace those things and i and i think i don't know whether it's a cultural change or whether it's always been the case but thinking that things will always work out perfectly i think leads to fragility and um wanting people to avoid the failures that will give us the lessons that breed that shock proof that you ask about in the dj yeah yeah my team my team says i'm getting older when i see this <laughs> <laughs> It's definitely the case uh, with, with, I guess, uh, being a, a leader and being a parent, I guess, is that whenever you're doing things better, people are going to accuse you of getting older. So <laughs> just wisdom, age, same sort of thing. N- Nadisha, you, you had something you wanted to add? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just like uh, Sumesh alluded earlier, I think Mike Tyson, who said that everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> yeah, and I, I subscribe to everything that uh, Simon just said um, lately around fragility and avoiding fragility and becoming and fragile. I think that uh, the heuristic that I tend to use here is that um, you want to be more right when you're lucky than wrong when you're unlucky. And overall, if you're like more than a little bit, more than 50% ahead, you'll continue to win and that will compound over time. 
because you cannot avoid like trying to avoid failures is not a not a realistic mm. strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and just because uh, Simon brought the magic word of the race metrics uh, into the conversation as well, I'll, I'll give you one of my other contrarian heroes, which is when the race metrics come in the door, the ownership goes out the door as well. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, yeah, and I'll try to tell to Kunal. Yeah, I was just going to um, <laughs> couldn't agree more. I like the Mike Tyson uh, quote, and I just start using that when people start saying stuff to me. Um, I was just going to talk about the uh, Simon mentioned junior engineers. One thing, um, when I uh, probably a couple of years ago, there was a junior engineer that had this fear of failure. Um, and there was a great anecdote I had when I was mentoring with him, and I said, like, failure is good. Like failure is where you learn. Like you shipping a feature production, everything going well, isn't really going to teach you that much. But you shipping a bug that causes an incident, I know it's going to be a terrible time when it happens, but your rest of your career, you will learn something that you will never do again. And I actually gave him a story that happened to me when I was in IC many years ago where that exact scenario happened to me. Um, and I was uh, I felt very abandoned at that time with my team because it was just me in the wars by myself. And uh, I just I can still see it to this day. I looked to my team and they just had their headphones on, couldn't care less about what was going on. And I remember saying to myself, if I was to ever be a leader of a team one day and this was to happen, I would never let my teammate be in that situation. So I think Samesh, when you said that, I think it was Samesh, sorry, that junior engineer who stayed around, that's the culture you want. Yeah, you may not know what's going on, but you're there for your teammate. You're in the thick of it with them and you learn and how you, you do retrospectives and you do all the things you need to do to learn the lessons. And that's what's going to build that team shockproof style culture because, yeah, it's okay to make a mistake. You don't want to but you know how to respond to it and you don't feel abandoned, which was, um, I think, a pretty important lesson that that junior engineer learned that day. Mm. Yeah, I I feel the same way. I can, can, like, almost viscerally experience, re-experience the mistakes that I've made. And I was fortunate, be it for various reasons, I was fortunate that I had people around me who encouraged that. Mm. Um, Not that long ago, we had a junior engineer at... uh, um, you know, I won't say it's a mistake. It was a system failure. The system let them down, but they were the one holding the keyboard at the time. And uh, I ran around and said to some more senior folks, can you just reassure this person that this is okay? I didn't give them any specifics, but coincidentally, all four or five people literally did exactly what you just said, Canal. They all related to this person the way they had screwed up in the past. Like I didn't ask them to, but their instinct was let this person know that we've all been there. And and <laughs> that person said that they really valued hearing from more senior people mm. that this is a normal course of everyone and we're all here. It's the system that failed, not the individual, and we'll all mm-hmm. be stronger for it. And I think uh, I feel like shockproofing or bringing in shockproof uh, and resilient teams could probably be a, a topic on its own, on its own because I think all of you have got uh, stories and anecdotes and, and sort of memories and everything around how you guys have sort of handled uh, situations to become the shockproof leaders that you are now. Uh, and I think that sort of leads us perfectly into what, what we're going to ch- chat about next with yourself, Samesh, was how do you scale sustainability? Uh, or how do you scale sustainably uh, when a market is uh, in short supply of talent? And uh, I'd love to hear what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, it's more uh, uh, asked for help than things. So. Okay. <laughs> but I will say, actually, um, like over the years, I've worked with different companies and which went through it's the same kind of mode where uh, sometime it's been market driven, where actually there's a lot of demand 
driven by like a lot of funding or yeah, banks if anyone is in here but generally like it's all uh, very active sometimes the salary itself is inflated so inflation depends upon uh, the perspective so at that moment it becomes hard so if you try to get someone in right it might cause a parity issue within your teams right so how do you manage that and uh, it's one of the one of those problems at least i realize that a lot of the company doesn't acknowledge or this doesn't get a strategic alignment on it is that in at that scenario as an employer we becomes the product and we are the one who is selling ourselves to the the customer and that happened i believe almost every one of you would realize during the pandemic driven growth uh 2021 2022 and all it was pretty uh, pretty so so if the employer doesn't have the brand with the customer then becomes very hard for you to make yourself like for example for us it has to be go through uh, you might like it razor we have to build a very good relationship with uh, recruitment agencies our Amazing own internal, internal TAs has to have a good relation one of the key part is actually it's not just actually uh shift the problem it's more about uh because people maintain good relationship and relationship warm for long time so and that's very important because people wants to understand what the company they are going in the career change they are going in when they have a lot of offers uh the second thing which we did uh, or at least we try to do was during other seasons i would call it as a season like other season we tend to elongate the process and i know there are companies who have 9 10 interview round even if the job may not require that right so you have to shorten that process and we had to do it and even if you have only one or two interview or three interview try to shorten the cycle time to two or three if possible because at this time you 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 have to be on the driver seat when the when your potential customer or prospect or your new employee is choosing you that they have all the options available and as much casual you can that would be good i believe and there's one more thing which i felt uh, like a which may not be a good option for everyone but i feel if the company can support right if they have good entity right if you can go you can expand the reach right through going into a new market or support remote working or even if you have an entity in different countries like singapore or like malaysia or philippines wherever it is right then try to explore that option and as a function right if you have hr function others work together to make it happen because the bureaucracy can stop you from getting the right candidate and if you can get out of that loop you will find real gem even during that uh, like a high high growth market now just open to the floor these are the things which i felt like i learned during that process sometime by the time i learned it i was too late uh it'll be it's it's a it's a good problem uh if you could get some tips <laughs> simon yeah can we lose simon no nope. i think we lost simon oh, we oh, we might back. oh yeah there you go yeah. <laughs> i don't know what happened one of my kids just started playing minecraft or something i don't know <laughs> um <laughs> I was going to say I can tell you what not to do. <laughs> um, I think you know we we had to we had to deal with that uh, and adapt what we the way we responded rapidly because um, the the instinct is always to I don't know I don't know how to say it without it sounding terrible but lower standards you know like quick 
get people in the door, or just get bums on seats, etc. Um, and I think that's a mistake. It's a mistake we had made and we changed our approach to it. Um, there's a massive cost. Sorry. That, that there is a very large cost to hiring the wrong person. And um, in retrospect, it far outweighs the person. You know, I think you said it before. Um, uh, you know, you get a whole new team of people. You're not going to get twice as, you know, you hire twice as many people, you're going to get twice as many, much productivity out of people. Um, I think the thing we did that made a biggest difference was rather than reduce the standards and reduce the number of interviews and things, it was get the cycle time down, like apply <laughs> standard engineering practices, like, you know, reduce the time between those things so that even if you want to main, even if we wanted to maintain the same level, uh, get people through the, through that process faster um, because otherwise they'll get a counter offer and they'll be somewhere else. And it might be that that other place has dropped half of their um, interviews to get there. That's up to them to do, but we, you know, we didn't want to. Um, and I think the reason I asked that question before, Canal, about the, you know, how did you maintain that approach? It was specific because that was a challenge that we had too, where there's there's such a pressure to hire people with technical skills as if the bottleneck to software development is the typing uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, I think sometimes I didn't push back hard enough against that. And that's a lesson, you know, hard learned. Natisha? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree with everything um, that you just said. I think that hiring the wrong person has like an enormous cost and, um, I have a lot of heuristics and one of them, as you read a lot of them, and I'm going to give you another one, which is uh, having no people, I mean, like being capacity constrained is infinitely better than having the wrong people in the room. Mm. And wrong to you kind of would mean different things like wrong culturally, wrong technical fit, um, wrong mindset, like it, it's, it's uh, you know, very context dependent. Um, one thing that I am sort of exploring uh, at Mr. Um, uh, is uh, this concept of, of single engineer groups. I think that uh, GitLab, um, if I'm not mistaken, is the first company which uh, implemented this in the incubation engineering uh, department. Um, it is a very risky strategy, but it kind of allows you to do uh, sort of more with less. Um, like the very definition of a single injury group is uh, like an individual, like a single individual who encompasses all of the product development uh, process. So the product management, engineering, design, quality, DevOps, uh, everything at the smallest scale, at the smallest scale. And they tend to have like defined goals and um, the defined outcomes. And then they report, they, they get like executive sponsorship and they report to like a really high people leader uh, in the injury group as well. Um, there are places where this doesn't work. There are places like there, there are, it's also, it's very context dependent, right? There are obviously project like high risk projects that you need like a team of individuals to maintain and like a large distributed system that would be a poor use, poor, poor use case for this kind of thing. Um, but that's something that I'm um, slightly bullish on lately that I've been trying to explore because of the talent and the cost constraints that we've been having. Simon? Oh, I think Sumesh was... Oh, sorry. First. 
Okay, so we all start. <laughs> so uh, there's one more piece, like uh, listening to both of you, Simon and Disha, like yes, the standard should not lower. That's one thing is for true. There's one thing which I believe even the big tech has been guilty of that, okay, sometime when this bullish market goes in, right, what you do is you your, your judgment gets clouded around the capacity and then you overhire. And that's one thing we have been, like at least the teams which I worked with has been very frugal on that okay, we have to absolutely protect what we are actually building uh, and if you don't hire that's okay then you have to deprioritize thing but if you over hire then we would end up in the same situation as like big tech a lot of big big companies have made mistakes uh, and that's something to learn from and yep yeah I couldn't agree more like we've made Minecraft again. Oh my Minecraft level two. Yeah. Minecraft level two. Can you hear me again? There it is. Um, I think it's also through the browser. Um, ah. We're not immune from that where I am now. Um, we've certainly uh, experienced growing too fast. Um, I like constraints are always good. Like they're always good. They make us think um, unconstrained growth it, it will make poor choices. Um, one of the things that we did. Uh, was to um, set up internally and we, we set it up about two years ago now, I think, an internal, what, what I called or what we called a developer effectiveness team. Um, and essentially the strategy that we employed was, look, we're in a constrained market, um, you know, things are tough, the macroeconomic climate isn't great. So um, rather than try and get more bums on seats, why don't we strategically hire like wait for the right people to join um, and focus internally on our culture and and um, capability. How would we do that? Okay, well, let's set up a team uh, that is specifically empowered to facilitate that. Um, they're not in the delivery, and this is a risky a risky move. Uh, everyone wants to put the uh, the spending on the people who are typing and uh, delivering the features out the door. But thankfully, we had buy-in for it. Um, and so now we've managed after, you know, some uh, attempts at doing this, we've managed to hire strategically, we have people in that team and their mandate is to not improve the experience of developers. I don't believe in that as a, as a mandate um, and not the efficiency of the developers, that's important, but the effectiveness of our uh, developers, of our engineers and um, to help all of the teams level up internally and get better at doing what they do um, to offset some of that stuff. And to be fair, I think it's a, it's a reasonable thing to do anyway. Uh, but would we have done it where we're not constrained? Probably not. Like we probably wouldn't have been forced to rethink how we do it. And so I'm very happy with the fact that we're, we're doing it. And I'm already seeing the, the benefits of doing so. Um, I was just probably a point earlier that I think Simon might have touched on, but um, yeah, it was something that I also said earlier about getting that return on that growth that you've already got. So I think it's probably easier to sell, go get two or three more teams of engineers and we'll get that return, but you won't. You might as well try and streamline what you've got today in the market that is tough at the moment. And are you really at that capacity? Um, I would argue you probably aren't at your true capacity of what you can deliver. It's just that you've grown so quickly, you need to kind of slow it down a little bit. And so thankfully, um, in my situation at Good Human, that's an ongoing conversation I'm having around, we've just invested in the last 10 months in a large number of engineers and QAs and, and teams. 
um, we haven't really hit full velocity, full power yet. Um, so let's not try and double that again because we might not need double. We don't know what we need just yet. And so um, it does bring up an interesting um, point for discussion around prioritization though. And as Samesh put that out, mm. we have to deprioritize some things because everyone or every every non-technical leader would want, um, product leader, for example, wants the feature yesterday. Everyone wants it now. Um, but getting three times the engineering capacity doesn't mean you're going to get the product three times faster. You're going to get three more versions of issues and things like that. And so it's more streamlining and thinking about strategically, as Simon said, where do you hire like a delivery lead for argument's sake? You know, where do you need to plug the gaps that you've got to actually get that velocity you need to get rather than keyboard typers, as we've been calling them? Yeah, and I, I think a lot of what all four of you have said uh, over sort of all the sort of discussion topics that, you, that we've had now uh, leads us really well into uh, what I think it has been something that a lot of companies have sort of dealt with and sort of worked with, and that's uh, strategic realignment. And uh, I think that that's sort of a, a buzz topic uh, in and of itself around how companies have sort of adjusted to that. But Simon, it leads us into what, what what you sort of wanted to bring to the table around how do you continue to scale during times of strategic realignment? You probably touched on a few of the things that you were planning on talking about in the answers that you've given so far, but I, I'd love to hear more around sort of what you've had to deal with and, and sort of how you've handled uh, situations of realignment strategically. Yeah, look, it's interesting. We've gone through uh, being a startup and a scale-up with growth, and now, um, you know, certain uh, inflection points and strategic realignment. What are our priorities? Like, what are our actual priorities um, in terms of growth and um, free money? It's easy to focus on lots of things at once. Um, that's always the trap. Um, so now we are working through, you know, what are what are we focused? We are prioritizing more heavily than we were. Um, and that involves um, some challenges. It, it touches on a bunch of stuff that you've all said, like maintaining a culture or enhancing, in fact, that culture, um, the changes that that entails uh, and the ability and the resilience of the teams and individuals to um to move through that change there's you know there's uncertainty in some of that stuff um there's a, there's a loss of stuff that people know when we're in a groove that flow state that we all try to achieve is fantastic um but when we move outside of that it can feel uncomfortable because now we feel inauthentic and we feel like we're not good at that new thing um and we might have to have teams realign around different objectives than we had before and so uh, if there have been differences in culture through the organization they become even more apparent uh, than they were potentially before and so yeah we're having to work through some of that stuff um, where we're leaning into I, I have a consulting background as you know for half my career so I have seen it work where you know you can reform teams around things a bit more dynamically like you know nurses and doctors and things do um it doesn't mean i don't believe in long-lived teams either um but i think there's trade-offs to be made there um that's something that i think at least in the last 10 15 years product development companies if you like have been very much focused on here's a team that's your systems that's your what you focus on and so this is a bit of a change to realign things um and as a leadership group 
um, I think we've had to learn the hard way that uh, leading through uncertainty is a challenge. It's like it's not easy to do that. Um, you have to constantly provide people with the vision, which might not be <laughs> certain, uh, but at least give people confidence because purpose and mission is super important to engagement. Um, I think, uh, you know, we've, we slash I have had to, I, I believe in seeking first to understand, but I think from a leadership group, constantly, proactively seeking to understand from the team so that you can understand the challenges they're having. They're not always um, intuitively what you would uh, expect them to be uh, because it's changed, right? And so all the things, all the heuristics that I've had in the past for what are the likely failure modes have kind of gone out the window and I've had to kind of go, well, I don't have a, I don't have a map for this anymore. Um, uh, I think there's a tendency to go, well, if we don't have a perfect clarity, we won't share anything. And we've had to learn that that's actually not the right approach. The right approach is to share what you know. Well, sorry, I say we, I keep saying we, I don't want to speak on other people's behalf. I have learned, decided, whatever that, um, I think it's better to share what I know and be very clear that this is what I know, this is what I don't know, and this is what I'm speculating about. And I think that at least allows me to be transparent whilst giving some clarity where I can. Um, you talked about planning, getting better at planning and seeking feedback, um, faster decision-making, having a go at something and being willing to for that to be wrong and to adapt. We've had to be much better at because in the past we've had these – roadmaps and everyone could execute on them and there was you know there's clarity in that whereas that's not necessarily true when you're realigning things um and i think the other thing is we've gone in this period of change you, i can't rely anymore on you know i strongly believe in empowered teams where the things we want to do bubble up but with that lack of clarity and the ambiguity and this you know cloudy vision you can't necessarily give those teams that what they need anymore to be able to do that. And so uh, having some more, a bit of top-down directive whilst still giving the empowerment to the teams is a tricky balance. Um, and so, again, I guess the, the last tip is to, that I have had to learn, I guess, is again, being clear. This is where I'm inviting discussion. This is where I'm being a bit more directive about, hey, I need this as an outcome. Um, and even in those directive cases, it might be like even breaking it down again in a sort of a fractal nature. Here's the thing we need an outcome for. I've got an idea, but I would like your input versus I actually need it to happen in this in this way. Um, they're things I kind of got away with not having to do in the past and I've had to learn pretty quickly to, to get better at them. And I'm still not saying I'm great at it, but certainly I'm aware of it more. Yeah. Smash. Yeah, like it's a very good point. So, I mean, I'm on your camp where actually I still believe like a long-lived product team makes sense for some cases, but not everything uh, because that's the way. Like I, I also have a consulting background. I've seen teams being fluid and people can rally against objective. Uh, I've seen actually the biggest problem I generally see is actually you say, hey, team has to be autonomous and do the stuff but then you don't draw a playground around that. Okay, within this playground, you can do whatever you want. At least you have a check that, okay, the playground is good or not, right? And this come down to like a three pieces. I believe this accountability, alignment, and autonomy is, is important. And 
you can have team can have autonomy, but the alignment should be there and some kind of like a checks and balance should be there to say that, hey, if you are on the right direction, it could be quarterly, like at least monthly or something like that. And um, accountability is also a key piece where we can't say that, hey, everyone is accountable. It's some way I believe there should be few aspects where people should be accountable for it. I'm not talking bring the racy in, but then we are accountable to the business in some way or form, right? So we are collectively responsible that we are making profit or we are serving the customer right. So these three things has to be constantly checked. And honestly, Simon, I, if, you, <laughs> if you have tips and tricks, how can we strategically align and put a periodic check somewhere? All welcome to, <laughs> to hear more from you because I find that's a very hard job. Like, and it's something which is underappreciated generally because it's easy to give people autonomy, teams autonomy, but the collective accountability and alignment is one of the hardest part, I believe, almost every business face. Yeah, that last one um, is, again, uh, everyone wants alignment, but everyone wants autonomy. And um, uh, and I think another hard one lesson is that there's no free lunch. You can't avoid alignment up front and then not have to get it at some point, right? At some point, people have to come back into alignment. And so that balance is, is hard, but I do think the alignment piece is is. Um, absolutely critical. Without it, people go off in opposite directions. Um, yeah. And then, sorry, and I guess the last thing I'd say is I, I think some people underappreciate how much effort alignment takes. Like <laughs> off, when it's going well, I guess like anything, when things are going well, it all seems magic. It's like, wow, this just happens. But what <laughs> people don't see is, you know, the, the duck's feet. All the effort that goes into actually making that alignment happen, uh, and I think sometimes what I've observed is when, when I surface or when my colleagues and I surface the alignment process, people are shocked, and they think, "Well, that can't possibly be what's required. Like that seems like far too much effort." And I'm like, "I don't know. If you've got a better way. Go for it." But bringing people together, talking about principles, and and you know, we're talking about scaling here. And you said before, Canal, about like you're bringing on your first engineering manager and how to scale. I guess the thing that I've come to the conclusion is that um, to me, that autonomy empowerment isn't a team making a decision all on its own. It's not me being there all the time. It's I want, it's not micromanagement and control. I want the confidence that if a team is making a decision, someone there understands how Simon would think. Yeah. and can represent me in that conversation. Mm -hmm. And if I know I've been represented in that conversation and they still made a decision that I wouldn't have made, I'll go, okay, that's great. Um, and the and the, what I've had to get better at doing is articulating um, my decision-making heuristics and principles. And I, I think we've all sort of said it. We, we, we've grown up as ICs and... Um, Potentially, I don't know if it's true for you, but certainly I ran a lot on my instinct and my gut uh, for a lot of my career. And I realized at some point that that wasn't going to scale, that I sort of talk about things as horizontal versus vertical scaling. Horizontal scaling is I want to do a thing. I know how to do it. The biggest barrier to me doing it is there aren't enough hours in the day. The laws of physics are against me. I just hire a bunch of people that think like me and I'll just tell them what to do. That doesn't scale as far as I'm concerned. Certainly, I've never managed to make it work. But the other way is to go, well, how am I making decisions? What are my heuristics? 
how would I have thought about that? And if I can help other people understand my decision-making process, then they can understand me. They can they can make those decisions the way I would. They can challenge me on those heuristics in the first place, and they can help me evolve those over time. And uh, that has been critical to this at the moment because when there has been uncertainty and ambiguity, I realise when I say a thing, if people don't understand why I wanted that thing done, like I'll get eight different versions of actually want and having people around me that can help me articulate those to other people has been like that DE team that I mentioned before, like they've been a great help to me. Like we literally sit down and I go, I I literally talk about I'm ram raveling in front of you. You need to help me <laughs> articulate. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, sorry, those are not wanting to monologue. You know? Um I have I have too many thoughts after what Simon's been talking about. So I'll just Go back to one that I had earlier, uh, but you mentioned something pretty important that I learned pretty quickly as well. You talked about transparency when there's ambiguity, where you've got a clear idea about what needs to happen on one part, but a whole bunch of ambiguity. Um, I'm pretty guilty early on of not sharing that information where I felt like as a leader, I needed to know exactly what needed to happen before I shared it out. Um, learned that lesson very quickly. Um, and I'm living a much better life now where I'm actually sharing that information with my my colleagues um, sooner rather than later. And it's actually serving a discussion more than anything else, which has been great. So there's some certainty, which is great. We all get that. But the areas where things are cloudy, unsure, uh, we live in this industry where things are changing all the time. Um, having a team and working together on that ambiguity piece has been a, a big, big change. Um, and I think the lesson I've learned around this is, and for any budding tech leader out there is um, transparency is great. Give the facts as you know it and uh, let the teams decide and help you on that journey. Hmm. In addition? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 100% agree. Um, I also believe that engine management is like a game that you can't win where like the objective is to hurt cats, but like half of them change spots halfway through. Um, but also, I tend to think that, like, uh, it, it, this has been true of, like, the organizations that I worked at in terms of product orgs. Um, they tend to fall into two different categories. One, uh, the first category is a permission-based culture, and the other one is the constraint-based culture. And permission-based cultures are really easy to spot. They're, like, very top-down. You need to do this. This is the roadmap, and this is exactly how you do it, and there's a clear chain of command. And the constraint-based culture is one where you have useful constraints, like do not deploy anything outside of AWS because you have discounts with AWS. Do not deploy anything outside of your Kubernetes cluster. Do not um, use libraries that do not have MIT or GPL or other, uh, you're not really uh, um, commercially um, I would say viable uh, open source uh, licenses. Do not, uh, you know, do not push directly to production. Uh, you know, constraints like that. And I tend to think that um, good talent tends to gravitate towards cultures where there are useful constraints and they're given the outcome. And then they are made to feel like, look, we value your opinion. We value how you approach the problem. This is the outcome we want to get to. It's a fair bit of ambiguity between now and where we want to get to. And, you know, quite frankly, we sometimes do not know how to get there. But these are the constraints. 
and let's experiment within these constraints. And, and that is something that I tend to follow um, in my um, day day role as well. Uh, Samish? Yeah, just uh, like as Simon and Kunal were speaking, uh, one thing which I realized actually when I'm guilty of a lot, like you expect a lot from your team generally, like a team should do this thing and put a constraint there, right? But like a later, like I realized it very late, right? We, at least my, as an engineering manager or engineering management, right? We're very poor at communicating or writing down our stuff and writing is an mm-hmm. underappreciated art in a lot of our role. We are really good at writing code, but after if it's not code, it feels a bit of a mundane. But the moment you start writing, right, you are putting your assumptions on the table for someone else to look. And that's one of the best way for people to to give reviews and feedbacks and all that stuff. And you build on top of it. And I'm now at this moment, I'm a big fan of one pager for a project or one pager for a service or something. At least it gives a guideline. You don't have to have 100 pages, but one pager is so solid if you can start with that. So still learning. So one day I will get better at it and I'll come to another show. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, go, Kunal. I'd, I'd rather hear from you. All right. Oh, I appreciate that, Simon. Um, Samish, 100%. Like, we, I, I'm exactly the same as you. Um, I say lots of things. We should do this, we should do that, and then magically expect things to happen um, and without giving my thought process behind it. But we've gone down the route where, uh, again, all credit goes to our engineering manager who's brought this in and actually teaching me on this and challenged me in the way I operate as we're doing one pages for those things as well. And very simple, what's the problem? What are we trying to do? What are the options? Who are the decision makers? And then documenting that and sharing it, not just within the team who made the decision, but wider engineering. So just to share that context with everyone, give everyone the transparency they required, um, rather than what historically used to happen was people would just come to me and ask me why that decision was made. Um, and I'm happy to have the conversation. As you can tell, I love to talk about these things, but it's not scalable. It also doesn't make any sense in about a year's time when I would have forgotten why I made a decision and who was involved with it. So, um, yeah, I totally agree with you. I'm terrible at documenting, but uh, this new one-pager process that we've brought in has is, been game-changing. Is that a, a term that's pretty consistent across the the industry, being a one-pager, or is that sort of just an easy way to say that you're just sort of providing a, a page I of think, information? I think we're just naturally lazy at writing docs and one page is enough, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's also a constraint, I think. It's, uh, yeah. it's hey, look, I, I, my heuristic used to be no more than five paragraphs, like just because that, you know, the default Google font size, that's about a page. You know, like, But I think it is, it's about a, it's about a you know, one thing I've obs- I agree with everything you've just said. Like it's and it's getting, you know, we have RFCs, we have ADRs, and and we have um, PR, you know, pr- uh, um, pull requests, and a whole bunch of stuff, right? Like that's a normal part of the engineering culture, and yet for some reason it doesn't happen naturally with other parts of the engineering culture, engineering management. Um, I've all I've I've been a writer. Like I like communicating through writing. Um, but that change is that cultural change um, isn't uh, necessarily everywhere. Um, but it's getting better. We're, we're learning as a senior leadership, I think, to do more of that stuff. Introducing decision um, documents, uh, and um, literally discussed it today in one of our senior leaders' meetings. That um, that process can be hard. Uh, it's very easy to look at a decision document at the end and go, "Ah, oh, that was easy," but the effort required to get there is often quite hard. It's messy. Like the document might end up looking 
the decision you make might actually have turned 180 degrees in the process of writing and reviewing and getting input and whatever, and that's not necessarily obvious, but the effort, I think, in the journey, the collective uh, um, uh, engagement, the alignment, the what you said before, Canal, about the um, there's a record. We, that's what we said we would do. We made the best decision we could at the time, given the information. That allows, without that, we, we're not necessarily great at, we all talk about reflection and learning and stuff, but if we haven't described what we decided at the time and why, how would we learn from it? And that's something we've had to learn to get better at as well. Um, and we're still on that change. Samish? Well, just to add, like, uh, sometimes I feel like uh, the one-pager piece, right? Like, uh, why one-pager? One-pager is the term that if you can keep it as small as possible that people can read without too much effort, it helps a lot. And the funny thing about document is actually when you do write those documents and all, right, uh, it's obsolete the moment you write it. Like, uh, you finish writing because after that, yeah, things would change. But then at least that period of, like, that activity period, right, short period there's a lot of things people can learn because you might not make an expensive mistake in three months time and the project is delivering people are aligned which is very connected to what someone you mentioned and i believe it should extend even far from engineering should go to business strategic projects too because the transparency around the dollars or the customer value will help a lot to people to find the purpose, why we are doing it, and even measure themselves as a team, did we build the right thing or not? Yeah, it almost comes back to, like, Nadisha, your question about resilience. I've, I'm guilty of this, uh, you know, worrying that if I tell people that, you know, and you talked about transparency, can I, like, if I tell people the truth or, you know, the unvarnished truth, they'll freak out. Um, mm. But I think I've, I mean, there are times when you can't reveal everything. There's, you know, there are commercial reasons and whatever. So I'm not saying that this is a, a binary thing, but um, I think I've decided, learned, whatever you want to say, that actually resilience is built through giving people the truth, letting them process it, helping them, supporting them through that, and eventually realizing that we'll all be okay for knowing it and that things will be okay. And then you get, you know, all those micro decisions that a team needs to make every day, they don't have to keep going up and down the command chain, quote unquote, because you, we've given them the information to make 80% of those decisions on their own. Mm. Um, and otherwise, bring it back to scaling. I can't scale to be in every conversation in a 130-person engineering team. Mm. Still, and, 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 you know, I can't imagine what Canva and others are like when there's thousands of people. Like, it just wouldn't scale it's hard to hire 20 Simons to have you sort of allocated all across the business. Yeah, I wouldn't want 20 of me. Nobody wants 20 <laughs> of me. <anyway. laughs> Definitely. Uh, guys, I, I, I'm conscious of the fact that uh, we've actually been been talking for a lot longer uh, than what I originally actually suggested that we would be. So as you are exceptionally busy uh, gentlemen, uh, what I'll do is thank you all very much for, for jumping in and talking to us and share, sharing your knowledge and even going a little bit further and uh, almost, I guess, case studying uh, how you would sort of scale in certain situations, which I, I think is exceptionally important important for the people that, that end up listening to the Evolution Exchange. But thank you again for your, your insights and sharing your experiences.